Amen. Thank you, guys. Our sermon this morning comes from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. If you're just joining with us, we're going through the, the book of Philippians, seeing the joy and the journey, and we're finishing up the first chapter of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 1, we're looking at verse 18, that second part of verse 18, through the end of the chapter, verse 30. What I'm about to read to you is God's Word. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, that is Paul's imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. If I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents." This is a clear sign of them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And thus far in God's holy, perfect, complete, powerful word, let's pray and ask that he might bless the reading, the hearing, the teaching of it this morning. Would you pray with me? Again, Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask for your spirit to fall fresh and anew on our ears so that they may be opened to hear your word proclaimed on our eyes so that they might, like the scales falling off of them, be opened, that we might see as if for the very first time. Holy Spirit, would you come and soften our hearts, change and mold it to look more like your Son. Help us, Lord, to fight the distractions of this world that we might focus solely on you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so I don't think this is news to y'all, maybe some of y'all are visiting, but my son loves Spider-Man, yeah, and, and this past year for his birthday, he got a legitimate Spider-Man costume, I mean, we're talking cover, covers him from head to toe, all Spider-Man, and, and every now and then, we get in the car, and he wears it out with him, and he'll walk around the store like Spider-Man, and people love it, and love it, and they'll cry out, hey, Spider-Man, and at first, he was like, me, okay, hi, and now he's like, yeah, I'm Spider-Man, hey, how you doing, uh, it's just as if it's nothing, and, and there's a comment I seem to get time and time again, and it's this, that kid's living his best life. And I can't really argue with that, um, but it makes me think 
what does living your best life really mean? We picture our best life as one without problems, don't we? One without stress, one without worry, one with total security. Our best life is like one giant vacation. And while we might daydream about that, that's not real life. And we know that. And more importantly, that's not what the Bible calls us to do. The Bible calls us to live a life that is far richer and deeper than what we could often perceive or assume is the best life. And we see that on display here in Philippians this morning as Paul invites us. He invites us into his thought process where we see that living the Christian life, this joy in the journey of the Christian life, it's far better than what passes for the good life today. Well, how is that? Well, there's deliverance. Then there's this fruit in Paul's decision to labor for the Lord Jesus. And so the scope of how we live has to be drastically changed. That's what we see this morning. That's where we're headed this morning. Deliverance, decision, and then the living the realities of the Christian life out. Those are our, our three points this morning. Deliverance, decision, living. Let's start by looking at uh, deliverance. See that in verses 18 through 20. And we're picking up in that second part of verse 18 where Paul has been saying that he can rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed, whether in pretense or in truth. He rejoices. Why? Because God loves him so much so that he can serve boldly instead of living with this idea that God loves him in spite of his sin. He can rejoice in his present circumstances. Whether anything happens, Christ is proclaimed, Christ loves him, he can rejoice. And then we have the second half of verse 18. Our text this morning. Where there's this transition from rejoicing in what is going through through the work of God in the world and now rejoicing in what God is doing in his own personal heart. You see, there's this transition from what's going on out there. Even when they preach falsely uh, about me, they're still proclaiming Christ. I rejoice about that. Great, that's in the world. Here's what's going on in my life. The first two sections this morning are Paul essentially laying his heart bear to us and he says first yes and i will rejoice why he tells us at the end of verse 19 deliverance deliverance what does it mean to be delivered in the most basic everyday sense what does it mean to be delivered when we order something from amazon and it's delivered it is handed over we receive it into our possession it is ours what about for paul to experience this type of deliverance. Deliverance is more than this idea of I'm being preserved from the pains of a jail cell. That's not deliverance. Verse 20 makes that clear where he says he can rejoice whether by life or death. So it's not some sort of preservation of pain that Paul is talking about in deliverance. What Paul has in mind here is an eternal perspective. Scholars call it an eschatological understanding of deliverance. And that's a fancy way of saying he knows that he has been delivered from the judgment of God. That he has been justified and deemed righteous by the blood of Jesus covering his sins totally. And because of that, because of that deliverance, that is because he has been received Through the blood of Jesus, he can rejoice whether he is released from prison or he's murdered in prison. He is delivered. 
He has deliverance. And no man, no institution can take that away from him. His words actually echo here. Job chapter 13, where Job writes, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my deliverance, that the godless shall not come before him. That's the hope of Job. And it's the same delivering hope of Paul. Those without God can never take away my deliverance. And so right away, we have this, this question, this application. And the application is this. Our, our deliverance changes the way we live. Think about that. If we have full assurance that we have been forgiven totally from our sins, that we have been given full salvation from Jesus, then we not only can rejoice, but we can live with such boldness, such courage in our faith, to face difficult things with hope. Do you see the connection there? What is your hope in? Your deliverance by your deliverer, Jesus. So before we go on, here's the question. Who is your deliverer? What gives you deliverance? Because if it is the cross of Christ, then brothers and sisters, you have a hope that can never be taken away. A freedom that allows you to serve and love, and abundance. If Jesus is not your deliverer, though, let me ask you this. What is it that you have hope and redemption in? What do you look for for deliverance? Because we all have that baked into our souls, don't we? We all have this need of redemption. We need deliverance. We know that. We need deliverance from our sin and our shame. Where are you going for that deliverance this morning? Only Jesus can bring about deliverance that frees you, truly frees you from all of your sin, all of it, all of your shame, and it covers you in his steadfast, never-ending love. See, we all need, we all want deliverance, but only Jesus can deliver us. Paul says it elsewhere in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice that this deliverance Paul is speaking about, it's not some self-conjured up deliverance. He doesn't just bring it out of thin air and pull himself up with this deliverance. Look at verse 19 again. Does he say, through my prayers this will turn out for my deliverance? No. What does he say? Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? That Paul recognizes here that there is a communal, a participation aspect to the Christian life. It is community-based. It is based in that union of Jesus. That the prayers of believers, even in Philippi, are being used for the delivering of hope and joy for Paul that he is experiencing now. Which means what? In its most basic sense, our prayers for one another are not just ideas that float up into the sky and disappear. Our prayers are effectual. Our prayers are answered, and they are part of a connecting union we have with one another through Jesus. And so practically, what does that mean for you and me? It means we are to pray for one another. This missions conference that we have coming up in a couple of weeks, maybe you had a flyer handed out by my son who is really Spider-Man. You can pray for those missionaries. You can pray for one another 
in this room. You can pray. If you need help, you can pray for me and my family as we go and look to plant a church in a few months. You can pray for us. We're going to need it. We're called to pray for one another because they are real. They are effectual. They are not just something we say and it just poof goes out into existence out of sight, out of mind. No, they are real and God answers them. But it's not just the community of believers that encourages Paul for deliverance. What else is there in verse 19? He says, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That Spirit that dwells within the hearts of believers. That Spirit that changes hearts from stone to flesh. That opens ears to the truth. That shines light into the darkness and brings us out of that darkness into light. Paul says, I know that is with me in my deliverance. I know that the Spirit is with me. Even here in this jail cell. Which means this. Paul can experience these things and know he is never alone. Even in a jail cell. Even if the Philippians forgot about him. He is not alone because the Spirit of Christ dwells with him. Do we know that? That we're never alone? That we have a community here that wants to participate with one another by praying and serving one another. But even if that fails... If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of Christ Jesus alive in you. That you are never alone. You ever feel lonely? The truth of the Gospel is you're never alone. So again, if you're not a believer here this morning, the question is, what do you do with your loneliness? Because... The truth is, people will fail you. They will leave you. They will go away. And you might say, my, pe- my friends will never leave me. Well, that might be true, but what happens when they die? It's morbid, but it's true. Where do you go with that then? What do you do with your loneliness? What do we do as believers with our loneliness but run to the cross and realize that the Spirit of the risen Jesus is with us and He will never leave us nor forsake us. Okay, so what does that knowledge of deliverance then mean? Look at verse 20. The deliverance, that deliverance, it brings courage to live and serve the kingdom of God in the midst of turmoil and pain and struggle with sin. Our deliverance brings certain hope. Paul said the same thing in Romans 8 where he says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait. What is he waiting for? He tells us in the end of of chapter 8, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul is saying, I have been delivered from now from my sin, and I wait for glory as a witness for Christ, and I can do that with courage because I know that he who delivered me from the bondage of sin will complete his work in me. He says it in chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians. And so because of that, he can live with certain hope in life or in death. In fact, Paul seems to be letting us into that life or death choice that he has to make in verses 21 through 26. So let's look there then as we consider the second point, the decision Paul has to make as one who has been delivered. That decision starts in verse 21, to live as Christ, to die as gain. You've probably heard that before. In the Greek, there are these, these are actual personal, powerful statements. It's literally live Christ, die, gain. 
He explains in the following verses what these statements mean. He says, for me to live is to serve God, to serve the gospel. It is to be in union with Christ and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. To live is to be in Christ and for it to be, uh, fruit, and to be, for it to be fruitful labor because of the Spirit working in him as he presses on each and every day. To live is Christ because as we sang, the last, sang last week, and all I have is Christ. He's ran the hellbound race. He was indifferent to the cost. And then Christ looked upon his helpless state, led him to the cross, and I beheld God loves displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me, and now all I know is grace. To live is to capture that, to realize that, and to want to serve that, that reality. To live is that. To live is the gospel. To live is Christ. And yet, to die is what? Gain. Gain. What does it mean to gain something? That it's, an advent, it's something that's advantageous. You gain something, it is profitable to you. And so Paul is saying, to gain here implies that dying is no match for the gain of being with the glory and presence of God. It is the very hope and reward of the Christian life. And so we see the struggle with Paul. Just look at verses 23 and 24. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So why does Paul stick around? Well, the same question can be asked of, of Christians, right? Why are you here? Like, why are we here? After all, for believers, the same thing can be said for us, right? To live Christ, die gain, right? Why are we here? Let me tell you. We are here because we want to worship and serve God. He has redeemed us. He has called us to Himself. We want to serve Him and honor Him and glorify Him, right? How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you live for Christ? By dying. How do you serve and live Christ? Every day we die. So that we might know life eternal. This just isn't just my thoughts or Paul's thoughts. What does Jesus say in Mark 8 and Luke 14? And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here's what I want us to get. That the call to die to self and serve the kingdom and serve the king, that call to die is what Paul considers it to mean considers it means to live for paul to live is christ is what a call to live and such dependence on jesus as that causes you to die every day and live for him and so even in the, even in this decision where he says i'd rather be in glory with jesus but i'm called by god to serve his kingdom he is saying I am called to live in Christ by Christ's grace and mercy. And so to live in Christ means I must die today. Death was never an option for Paul. He was going to literally die or die to himself every single day. What about us? We don't like to die, do we? I think that's ingrained in us. 
this, this is not natural. This is not the way it was supposed to be. Death is defeat. You ever play, I remember playing video games as a kid back in the day when they had just the cartridge. You know what would happen with the Nintendo before my Mario would fall and die? Oh, reset button. Oh, take the cartridge out. You can't do that today because you'd ruin everything, burn your house down. But back then you could. Uh, we don't want to die. So why does Paul say, I must live, I must die to self and live? Why does he do this? Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. That might not seem like much, but what Paul is saying is, when I looked around, when I looked and saw what was going on, I realized I was convicted I became convinced that I must serve you all. I must continue to preach Christ. I must continue to shepherd and to preach to you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Do you see this? I was convicted that I had to continue to live as Christ. Why? So that you would progress and joy. For your your progress and your joy in the faith. Here's what I'm convinced of. That as Christians, we are called to be convicted and convinced of the very same thing as Paul. That we need to continue with one another. Encouraging and participating with one another in the progress and joy of our faith. Let me ask you, have you ever felt like you've been in a stale spiritual condition? I have felt it. I know most of you have felt it. If you say, I haven't felt it, well, you're a liar. Or you just say, you know what? I just feel stagnant. I feel stale in my faith. I feel distant from God. I don't understand what's going on. You know what's happening? We're not progressing. We're not having joy. We need one another. We need help from one another. And yes, we need the caveat. We need the Holy Spirit at work. But we need one another to keep progressing and rekindling our joy. Why is being a part of a church so important? We need one another to help progress in our love and joy and progress in the faith. This theologian, Walter Hansen, he captures why we are called to do this. He says this, real progress in the faith will result in genuine joy in the faith. That progress without joy is fake. That joy without progress, it is counterfeit. It is fake. We live and participate with one another in the faith so that as verse 26 says, we have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Which on the face of it sounds great, doesn't it? We live to glorify God and live for Him. That sounds wonderful. It sounds like a mission statement. What does that living look like? Well, Paul starts to tell us in verses 27 through 30. Let's close then by looking at what living our best life really looks like. He starts up in this section by saying, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now there's a problem uh, in, in our translations with this verse uh, because there's something missing. Now if you have a Bible, go ahead and look there in, in this section. And do you notice a little footnote next to the word worthy? It's in the Pew Bible because I checked. I know it's there. And that footnote probably says something like, the Greek says, only behave as citizens. Or he mentions the word citizen in there, okay? Paul has just bared his soul to us. He's opened up as to why he has decided that it was worth serving the kingdom by continuing on 
And now he is saying, as you progress in your faith and joy in the gospel, now let your manner of life as a citizen of heaven, as a citizen who has deliverance, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. As in, so he's saying, as a citizen of heaven, how, do, how are we to live here and now? And he gives us three things that highlight a life of someone living with this hope. Three things that a citizen of heaven should live by. They are to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, being striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and to not be frightened. That's quite the list. Let's look at those things, okay? First, whether in his presence or if he is away, so if I'm with you or not, which is so all the time, we are to stand firm in one spirit. The word standing firm comes with this meaning of being firmly committed in conviction, you know, standing your ground, true to your roots. All those ideas come with this idea of, of foundation. Being firmly committed in conviction. Now com- consider the environment Paul is writing this in. Where is he at again? Prison. And is he in prison because of his convictions? Yep. So there is this call to persevere first by standing firm together in the truths of Scripture because, and this makes total sense, what do attacks usually aim at if you're trying to destroy something? Let's take, well, you know what we should do? We should, we should aim for the weakest parts. They'll never suspect that. That's how we're going to, no, you aim for the strongest, most foundational objects. That's how you take things down. The foundation, their firm conviction and commitment to the gospel. That is what they are to stand firm in. In one spirit, in the spirit of God, the only spirit that that can unite people. That's the first thing. Second thing, as he says, is to strive together with one accord for the faith of the gospel. Striving together has this idea of being side by side. You stride together. You walk hand in hand together. Wouldn't that be awkward if you carried a conversation with someone as you're walking and they were right behind you? That would be ridiculous. It wouldn't work. You're side by side, striving together. In fact, this is common uh, usage in military advancements in this time in the ancient Near East. They would write about striving side by side together. But the idea here is of unity. They are united, as Paul will say in just the next chapter. They're united, uh, having the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. They're to be united. And the idea of unity is easier said than done, isn't it? Let me ask you, is it, is it easy to strive side by side just with members of your own family? You go for a day, can you, can you stand side by side striving together? Maybe a day. Maybe two days. If you have a seven and four-year-old, maybe one minute. It's hard for a family to do that. Let alone a church family, Right? You ever experienced that? So did the Philippians. After all, the fourth chapter of the Philippians says what? It starts off by talking about two believers who are in Christ who need help to agree in the Lord, to strive side by side together in the Lord. And Paul goes further saying, hey, church, help them do this. 
If you look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, and see, see, let me read that. See if a word or a phrase sticks out to you. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Y'all, we are called to serve side by side together for the sake of the gospel, for the spread of the kingdom of God. And that can only happen if we are of one mind what does that look like we're going to see in chapter two but suffice it to say this you can only serve by side side by side for the gospel if you're united together in one spirit are we united together in one spirit final way citizens are called to live without being frightened and anything by your opponents. Now, this is the final Greek reference I will make because it's the, it's the end of the sermon, and so I can get away with saying that. Uh, but uh, I think this is pretty cool. The word being frightened, it's not used anywhere else in the Greek New Testament. But there is a writer who does use this quite often. His name is Plutarch, and he is a contemporary of Paul, and he writes about battles that take place. And he uses this term, this word, often to describe the frightening of horses. In fact, in one instance, a Roman soldier horse, soldier's horse was being frightened so that it threw him off and trampled him to death. Here's the connection. Hansen says it, I think he's right. Paul's instruction to stand firm without being frightened calls for Christians not to be agitated and terrified as horses often are on the battlefield. Christians are not to be intimidated in any way, no matter how powerful the opposition is. Nothing should shake the resolve of those who stand firm in the one spirit, lined up side by side as one person. They should not be scared by any threat or any torture. They should not run from battle, back down from any attack, compromise anything, or concede in any way. Why? One reason is you're delivered, and you have deliverance. But why should citizens of heaven act with such courage? Look at the second part of verse 28. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. Now, this is not saying, hey, if you suffer, it means those people are going to hell, you're going to heaven, good job, free pass. What it points to is this idea that the conflict and struggles you face are a sign that you are indeed living out the gospel, that you are participating in the sufferings of Christ, as he says in Colossians 1, and as Paul says here in verse 30. That's amazing, isn't it? You can participate with Jesus in a way. So what does this mean for you and me? Well, I want to close with two final points of application. The first is that Christians have been told time and again that opposition will happen. Have you heard that? If you're a Christian, you're going to face some struggles. You're going to face people who don't agree with you. Well, yeah. Christians have been told time and again that opposition will happen, and it happens not because we seek out arguments and want to, or that we're inciting or stoking fires. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, you're going to experience opposition. You know why? He says this, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. That you have an aroma, he says, of Christ. He says we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. Do you see that? 
Opposition to the gospel. Opposition to an aroma of God. Opposition to the gospel. Nothing else but the gospel. Opposition can and is and will happen to believers from the world. May the gospel be the reason for that opposition. And may we stand firm in that foundation of the gospel. As we know we've been delivered and we can have courage because of that. Here's the final point. Our aroma of Christ, our courage of standing together in one spirit and one mind, our, our to live as Christ, our living our best life is to what? What is it to live your best life? It's to die to self. Every moment of every day for the sake of Christ Jesus who says to his disciples, what, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you are here this morning and you're a believer, you have been delivered. You're no longer enemies with God. You have been delivered and you're never going to be alone. He is with you. That gives you courage to say, you know what? I believe in the gospel. I can stand firm with my brothers and sisters and to live is Christ and die is gain. One day, die will be gain. One day, I will gain. But for now, let me live for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us that you have delivered us. You have given us real deliverance just as you've delivered your people from time and time and time and ages past. You delivered Israel out of the hand of Egypt. You delivered uh, your people in the wilderness. You deliver us now from our sin through your Son, Jesus. Oh Lord, may our deliverance create a deep realization that we can face anything. And because of that, we can choose and decide to follow you, to live is Christ. And may that living of, to be Christ, may that be dying to self. Would you help us die to ourselves so that we might produce fruit in this world, that we might produce an aroma of Christ that does bring about life. But in those moments when that aroma brings about death, O oh Lord, may we know that we face this opposition side by side with one another, with brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we can stand firm in your promises knowing that you are with us, that you're never going to leave us, May we trust in that and trust in our deliverance brought about by your Son on the cross for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.